Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're the December 23rd, Tuesday, 2014, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And tonight, we're going to do a recap of 2014. And these are the best shows of 2014. How do I know they're the best? Well, you said so. So these are the most most you replays of 2014. This is the diabetes debacle. Yes. Now this show was one of my favorites, very close to my heart, because as many of you know, by the medical boards in the United States and ultimately my obligation that ostensibly started because I gave a patient advice that allowed him to lower his blood sugar 180-something down to 135 in one week without drugs. Yep, that's right. That's what happened. I confess. And so I said, well, I might as well explain to people uh, what diabetes is and how to cure their own. So the big deal of this show is that diabetes has not a lot to do with insulin production in the pancreas. Why? Because if you're a type 2 diabetic, your pancreas makes more insulin than a non-diabetic person's pancreas. So your pancreas' ability to make insulin is actually not a problem in diabetes. What actually is a problem is something that's called insulin sensitivity. And this is a very nice marketing term, actually. And what it means is your body does not have the ability to respond to insulin. 
And without going too deep into that, then duh, how can giving extra high doses of insulin, ingesting insulin, solve the problem? Of course it can't. And this is why uh, tight control of diabetes actually results in increased mortality and increased death rates. So this is, of course, the diabetes debacle, which would be uh, tight control, that's a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7.6 in terms of treatment goals for diabetes. And this is, of course, the standard of care, what doctors are trained to do, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7.6 is associated with increased death rates. You go figure. And so, of course, as we speak, the medical experts are trying to figure out how to break this news to diabetics and still get them to submit to something called tight control. And so that is the diabetes debacle. And of course, the good news, the good news is uh, it is an issue of nutrition and can be solved easily with nutrition. So the diabetes debacle, great show. It looks like it's given hope to a lot of diabetics and relatives of diabetics. And of course, the cure for diabetes, so I don't leave you in suspense, is something called a whole food vegan diet devoid of preservatives, chemicals, additives of any kind, preferably, preferably organic, and of course, GMO-free. In other words, not genetically modified. By the way, most insulin given to diabetics in 2014 are from genetically modified sources. That's right. So people who would not eat genetically modified foods, who object to genetically modified foods, are actually injecting themselves with a genetically modified substance, which, again, need I say more, is not producing health. So that is the diabetes debacle. And, of course, that recording is available at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash truth dash file. And the next most popular show is how the Affordable Health Care Act has made you a surf with no land to farm. Because if you had land to farm, at least you could eat some organic weeds along the way, or maybe even some organic food, without having to pay for it, because, of course, if you just on your own land, you'd be a surf. And so a modern-day employee has no land, can't even begin to feed himself, yet he has become a slave to his employer, not only in the eight hours a day that he has agreed to work, but for no additional pay, the employer can now tell the employee how to eat, what to eat, if to have sex, who to have sex with. The list is endless. All, of course, in the name of meeting biometric targets. Then, even more distressing, in case you want to be distressed, is the employer can compel the employee to submit to biometric testing. Now, this is a pretty loaded term, biometric testing. Um, biometric testing, and if you Google it, if you look it up, is very, it's very, very, very a troubling term. A biometric testing is a biological marker whereby a person can be identified. That would be your height, your weight, your fingerprint, your retina scan, um, all kinds of things um, that are biological properties of you because, well, you're you. And so employers now are penalizing employees anywhere from uh, 100 to 
uh, even $500 a month for refusing to submit to biometric testing. Now, the biometric testing is, of course, not ever made available to the employer. So where does this data go? Who is it available to? How can the employer determine if the biometrics are within a certain range or not? Interesting. And so what basically is happening is the Affordable Health Care Act is indirectly compelling every American to release his personal metric data, which can be and probably will be used in the future to facilitate tracking uh, and control of that human being. And so this is actually written into the Affordable Health Care Act. What's the answer? Dun, dun. Don't be an employee. This is not a good time to be an employee. And more specifically, if you decide to be an employee, opt out of the Affordable Health Care Act because then you have, of course, no health care premiums to pay. And you may choose to pay the $90 uh, penalty, which is what it is this year, or what I would recommend is getting religion. Yes, getting religion. And um, accessing the religious waiver, in other words, you need to profess that your religion does not permit you to gamble, which is what insurance is. When you buy an insurance policy, you're gambling that the amount of health care you use will be more than the amount you pay in premiums. And I think with most religions, it wouldn't be too far reached to say that the religion does not support gambling. The Affordable Health Care Act, one way is the religious exemption. Don't even participate in the Affordable Health Care Act don't even get health insurance. The next option is to not be an employee, work for yourself. And if you look at the numbers, the average uh, employee in the United States is earning about $50,000, more or less. The average self-employed worker, and I didn't mean average, mediocre, average, is earning $100,000 a year. So there you have it. The advantages of being an employee are just not that great. And as for security, well, ask any employee you know just how secure they feel. If they think they're really going to have that job 20 years from now or 10 years from now. So the Affordable Health Care Act has made people into serfs, a situation where their time off the job as well as their time on the job is now controlled by a third party. And so they are not um, free in any way, even close to being free. And of course, since they have no land to farm, they're reduced to going to the grocery store and paying exorbitant prices for something called organic. So that's number 13, which brings us to number 12 for the year. This is the heart disease hoax. The heart disease hoax. Well, the heart disease hoax is just, just incredible. Um, Last year, for which numbers are available, 2012, which is, of course, an embarrassment that numbers have not, are not available for anything more recent, suggests that 800,000 Americans are dying of cardiovascular disease. And, of course, the hoax, part of the hoax, is that the numbers being used to substantiate heart disease as a public health issue are derived from things unrelated to heart attacks, although they're not even heart attacks. For example, um, congestive heart failure is counted in this um, number. Strokes are counted in this 
number. And most of all, what they're really worried about is that attack of crushing chest pain that just comes out of the sky is going to just kill them dead. That's what most people are worried about. It turns out that, that those deaths are a very small number. They're not 800,000. They're more like 120,000, which is still a lot of deaths, don't get me wrong. And then if you take a look, a closer look at that number, you find that most of those deaths are caused by medications and food additives and B vitamin deficiencies none of which are discussed in the American Heart Association's program to save lives. Yes, in fact, if you want to avoid a heart attack, the most important thing you could do is probably not taking your arthritis drugs because um, arthritis drugs uh, have been responsible, believed to be responsible, um, for as many as 50,000 cardiac deaths per year. That's a lot of cardiac deaths. And this is, of course, the um, famous COX-2 uh, inhibitors. So the first part of the heart disease hoax is that heart disease has almost nothing to do with blood pressure or cholesterol levels. Why? Because 200,000 of these people dying these heart disease are dying of hypertensive heart disease. What does that mean? Well, that means when you have high blood pressure, they're taking their blood pressure medications, and it didn't work. They still die anyway. So you can't make a case that putting more people under the care of doctors and taking heart disease medicine will in any way reduce heart disease. There you go. So another part of the hoax. So, so the first part of the hoax is how the numbers are counted. So you get a very inflated figure of 800,000, or maybe it's closer to 100,000. And then on top of that, the etiology of the 100,000 deaths, these people who die suddenly out of the blue, no risk factors, um, appears to be there are arthritis drugs, there are diabetes medication, actually heart attacks. And again, this is not shared with the public, and this is part of the hoax. Now, the next piece of the hoax, of course, is the therapy. So what's the therapy to prevent slash treat heart disease? Well, one piece of therapy would be um, cholesterol-lowering medications, right? So cholesterol-lowering medications, what do they do? Well, they cause diabetes. Duh. <laughs> How's that going to help? And so they, lead, they also cause strokes. Now, there are some very clever people who've done some clever research and done some clever numbers, number crunching, and they found that cholesterol medications do prevent heart attacks, although it does, on average, take 1,250 years of use in order to re- avoid one deadly heart attack. This is to say the non-deadly heart attacks are not avoided. Now, who, listening to this show, with confidence, feels they are going to live to be 1,250 years old? Because you have to live that long on your own, and then the cholesterol medicines help you out. Well, how about how you like that? That's pretty cool. So, another piece of the hoax. So, what other, what other therapies do they have for this um, heart disease thing? Well, of course, it's your blood pressure medications. Lower your blood pressure so you don't get a heart attack, right? Well, hmm. Turns out that people have high blood pressure for a reason. And one reason they have high blood pressure is that um, there's not enough blood getting to the brain and the kidneys. That's right. Not enough blood getting to the brain and the kidneys. So what do they do? Well, lower the blood pressure so that even less blood gets to the brain and the kidneys. Yep, you got it. You got it. And so what do you have? Well, now you've got a person who uh, 
ends up on dialysis or probably just as bad, a senile with Alzheimer's. And so this is the true nature of the heart disease folks, is that the treatment for heart disease, which hypertension, actually worsens the underlying problem that the body was trying to solve. The body is trying to solve a problem with the hypertension. It's trying to solve the problem of not enough blood to the kidneys or not enough blood to the brain. So what does modern medicine do? What does the standard of care do? They embark on the heart disease hoax, the standard of care, which is implementing a therapy that actually makes the situation worse. What do their numbers say? Always need to take a look at their numbers. Their numbers say that it takes, on average, 748 years of use in order for cholesterol-lowering medication to save one life. Okay. Again, that means that you need to live 748 years. And if you live 748 years in one day, then your heart disease slash hypertension medicine will help you live the next several days. And, of course, how many people listening to this show with confidence believe that they're going to live 748 years? I don't know. There may be somebody out there. In any case, even if you do plan on living 748 years, is it really a bargain to take anywhere from one to five pills every day of those 748 years so that you can live to be 748 years in one day? That's a question only you can answer. But this is the nature of the heart disease hoax. So what's the answer to the heart disease hoax? Well, the answer to the heart disease hoax, of course, is to improve the circulation to the brain and to the kidneys, not to decrease it. And the way you do that, of course, is you change your food and you start eating foods that no longer have residues, poisons, and chemicals in them that clog up the circulation and you eat food that is high enough in folic acid and other B vitamins so that you don't get something called beriberi, which is basically a manifestation of heart disease, heart failure and heart attack. So we have the heart disease hoax, um, which is number 12. Now we have number 11. This one is really close to my heart. The modern face of syphilis. The modern face of syphilis. Those of you listening who are older, I'm 57, so you'd have to be about, mm, I guess, close to 70. Remember way back when, when syphilis was a disease. People had syphilis. You'd say, so-and-so has syphilis. And so people would whisper, so-and-so has syphilis or whatever. And there are... Uh, there were states that demanded a syphilis test as a condition of marriage. You couldn't get married unless both people had a syphilis test and they were found to be negative. I don't know what they did if both of them had a syphilis test and they were found to be positive. But at any rate, so syphilis test was part of the uh, process of getting a marriage license. And when I went to medical school, which was late 70s, early 80s, they were mentioning that syphilis was treated very nicely with penicillin and you just get two big shots of syringes of penicillin right in the butt and by golly you're cured. So of course as a medical student my feeling was wow relief. Sounds like a pretty bad disease to me. I'm glad we got something for it. 
So, um, that was, that was, I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, wow, great. And of course, you learned about another disease called lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. We learned that these diseases were diseases where the body attacked itself. I was like, oh my gosh, how gruesome. The body attacking itself. Oof, can't win that fight. And then I said, oh, by the way, so many people are going to have positive cephalus tests, but don't worry, just ignore it because it's a false positive, yes. And just by the way, and again, government's own numbers, 20% of people with lupus actually have a positive cephalus test. 20%, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of positives. And so we doctors are told these are false positives and ignore them. I always felt uneasy about that. Man, you know, if someone's got a positive syphilis test, can we just treat it? I mean, ah, I don't feel good about leaving it alone and not doing anything to help them, you know? So, no, no, no. Give the person steroids, which suppresses their immune system, and this is what, what people with lupus need. So, then, of course, you heard about this Tuskegee experiment where these unfortunate African-American men were monitored and lied to by African-American doctors and told that they were being treated for syphilis when they were not being treated for syphilis. And, of course, their symptoms were just being, being monitored over time. I said, oh, my gosh. And, of course, I'm sure everyone else said, isn't this horrible? It's just a terrible thing. And what people focused on was that um, this was happening to black people and that this was racist. In other words, the presumption was this was happening to black people and had no effect on anyone else. Because 20 years into the experiment was autoimmune diseases and lupus was launched. And then so they just had these two diseases, exactly the same symptoms, only one was deemed incurable, treatable only with prednisone, and the other one was deemed to be a sexually transmitted disease. And so... Uh, the modern face of syphilis is autoimmune disease, and so particularly lupus. And so these autoimmune diseases are not at all autoimmune. They are actually uh, infections, low-grade chronic infections, uh, and in many cases, actually syphilis. And so this radio show talks about how syphilis was transformed, what we know to be syphilis, was transformed into a chronic incurable disease. And then, of course, I went back further and said, well, let's take a look at this. Did penicillin cure syphilis? Did it really cure? Did it cure syphilis? So I went back to the DAPA website and what did I find? Holy cow, holy cow. The penicillin treatment for syphilis was filled with treatment failures. Holy gee whiz. So the penicillin revolution, well, I guess it was a farce. And so the modern face of syphilis, quite a show, really uh, revealed a lot of issues in medicine, brought us up to speed, helped us understand how 880,000 Americans could possibly die as a result of their medical care. Not in spite of, but as a result of their medical care. So that's the modern face of syphilis. And that was a pretty popular show. So we have 13, 12, 11, number 10. Oh, this is a, this is a doozy. 
How do you know what to believe? How do you know what to believe? Of course, this one wasn't started because people were believing all kinds of things and they were very, um, very concerned about hearing things that were contradictory and trying to sort through this contradictory information. And just how do you know what to believe? And I think this show is very popular because people were in a state of needing to sort out what to believe and what not to believe. And it turns out that you don't know what to believe and that you have to constantly test and compare it is to what you observe. And that's really the only way. There's no shortcut. There's no expert to believe. There's no expert to delegate your judgment to. Um, and this might be why wealthy people tend not to have any better health than people who are not wealthy. Why? Because the quick way to get wealthy is to hire an expert, delegate things to him, and measure the financial output. That's it. Very simple. But with your own personal health, that doesn't work because the actual solution can't be delegated. You've actually got to change the way you do things. You've got to change your personal life. And so you can't delegate that. That's one thing. The next thing is the expert opinion. What works for one person doesn't always work for another person. And so the whole basis of determining what to believe and how to get things done is really turned on its head when you're considering your personal health. When it's your personal you have got to actually do things, implement things, make changes. And also what you have to do, of course, is make observations and determine if something really is having a beneficial effect or not. And you can't believe something that announces it or the FDA it or the CDC announces it. Just that's not enough proof not an adequate level of proof. And so in the show, I actually go through different pieces of research slash scientific literature to analyze what the study is saying and what conclusions one can draw. For example, there are studies that conclude a drug is absolutely, totally, completely ineffective. And as a result of the study, the drug gets approved by the FDA. And so FDA approval then is not something to believe. So because something to prove by the it's not me, that it is either safe or effective. And so this is definitely a show to, to listen to. How do you know what to believe? And it will give you the confidence you need to say, hey, wait, I'm the decider. <laughs> yes, you don't need to win or steal a presidential election to become the decider. You can be the decider in your life. And number nine, how prostate cancer became a disease. And this is a shocking thing because, of course, well, if prostate cancer makes people sick, then it's a disease. How can it suddenly become a disease and suddenly stop being a disease or suddenly become a disease? that's, That's bogus, right? Of course it's bogus. So you've got to figure out either it's a disease or it isn't a disease. So nothing becomes a disease unless, of course, 
and diseases are manufactured and marketed. It has nothing to do with health and illness. In other words, a disease is possibly a just a billing category, just a reason to collect money. So with prostate cancer, I traced my first uh, contact with prostate cancer back in 1974, long time ago. Back in 1974, I don't know if many of you were paying attention back then, but in 1974, prostate cancer was not a disease. And even studying prostate cancer, mentioning prostate cancer, even looking for prostate cancer was something that was totally ridiculed in medical circles. Why? Because everyone knew that if you diagnose somebody with prostate cancer, they were going to die, of course, of something besides their prostate cancer. They were not going to die of their prostate cancer. And this is something that is just, uh, it was very distressing to doctors who were employed in uh, the prostate cancer research area because, of course, they were never taken seriously. And it was something that was employed that was a, a, a big issue with urologists because they were kind of running out of work to do. I mean, it's only so much plumbing to unplug, so to speak. And so couldn't the urologist uh, get into something a little more lucrative? And so what happened when I was in medical school was they decided that prostate cancer needed to be screened for. And so they had the prostate specific antigen, which of course has now been discredited. It's not a reasonable marker for anything. And of course, there was the um, alkaline phosphatase test, and there was the bone fraction and the prostate fraction, and all these tests. And so what, is, what happened then is an incredible marketing campaign took over, marketing directly to the males in the United States, urging them to get their prostates checked and urging every doctor to do a digital rectal exam on every male that walked in their office. And of course, that was pretty unpleasant. And for me, it wasn't something I, you know, look forward to. And I thought, why am I doing this? This makes no sense. It's not helpful for the patients at all. But I mean, the guys lined up and they even told me, Dr. Daniels, you have very skinny fingers, so I don't mind you doing my rectal exam. I said, well, thank you very much. But still, it was to, to no avail as I tried to relax and calm these men's fears about their prostate cancer. Not prostate cancer, just their prostate, period. Even the need to check. And so, of course, I would only check when someone asked. And even then, I would reassure them about their results. Which of course, it's probably not the right thing to do. I was supposed to scare them into getting a slew of unnecessary biopsies. But many of my patients were unhappy with my casual attitude, and they would, they would go straight to the urologist and say, I want my biopsy, darn it. And of course, I hated this because then they'd come back to me with their infected biopsy sites, and I had to treat their infected prostate biopsy for an extended period of time. But I digress. How did prostate cancer become a disease? And so in this show, we find out that people with prostate cancer live longer, which are men with prostate cancer, live longer than men who do not have prostate cancer. So, of course, why would anyone want to cure this disease? We even played the old Diana Ross songs. If there's a cure for this, I don't want it. So, prostate cancer became a disease uh, as a result of Madison Avenue getting involved and really just taking over.
and conversational dedication. You're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniel on the Rainbow Soul. I'm sorry, the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. Okay. So the next pop, the next most popular show, this is number eight in the countdown, is Is Your Doctor Studying Insurance Instead of You? <laughs> this is awesome. And this show reveals um, was the intrusive nature of insurance and how your doctor is paid by your insurance company based on how he treats you. And so your treatment is determined by what your insurance company will pay for. A person, two people who have an ache or a pain, if your insurance company pays more for gout, darn it, you got gout. If they pay more for osteoarthritis, well, I guess you got osteoarthritis. And so this is a subtle, that's a subtle uh, case, but it is very real that what your insurance pays for determines a lot about your health care. Something as simple as whether or not you have AIDS. If you're concerned about AIDS and you'd like to get an AIDS screening test, your doctor can choose any one of three tests. And usually when you do all three tests, they don't agree. At least one of them is going to be negative. And so if you do such, if your doctor does a screening test, he's going to pick the one that your insurance company will pay for. And that may be just the one that's going to be positive today. So uh, is your doctor studying insurance instead of you? And the answer is, of course he is because the insurance company can penalize them by non-payment. You don't have the power to do it. The insurance company can penalize them by initiating complaints with the uh, medical licensure board, something that you actually don't have the power to do. I mean, you as a patient can lodge a complaint, but patient complaints are generally dismissed and ignored, and the licensing board is used as a disciplinary action for physicians who anger uh, drug companies, politicians, or insurance companies, or hospitals. And so it's put there, and patients say, oh my gosh, you know, this is this is a drug with a licensing board looking over doctors' shoulders. The truth of the matter is true that 1% of all doctors are ever investigated. Fewer than 1% are ever investigated. And why are they investigated? I know, because I went through this. So I couldn't figure out why I was being investigated. So I went to a hotshot lawyer. His name is Mr. Gold. He's dead now. Mr. Gold, who wrote the book, by the way, uh, for New York State Investigations. So I went to him and said, what do I do? What's going on? Why am I being investigated? The patient got better. He did really well. I don't understand. And he said, these investigations generally start as a vendetta. And that's really all it is. You need to figure out who's got a vendetta against you. You know, is it a fellow doctor? Or is it a hospital? You know, these investigations invariably are vendettas. Any other investigations just don't go anywhere. I said, oh. <laughs> so then, where do you start looking for vendettas? You know, that's a tough thing to pin down. And so what this means, though, is that investigations by uh, licensing boards have nothing to do with patient care and clinical outcomes. And that's really uh, unfortunate. But the point is, the doctor... When it's you and him in the room, so you think, what's running around his head is, what do I have to do to keep my license? Who do I have to please? And you are not on the list. He's got to please the hospital if he's in the hospital. He's got to please the insurance company if he expects them to pay him. He's got to please the uh, 
drug companies, because a lot of times they write the standard of care. They're writing the protocol that he's following. So is your doctor setting insurance? Absolutely. Is it damaging to your health? Of course it is. What's the answer? Not to have insurance. That would be it. To not have insurance or to have insurance that reimburses you after you pay the doctor. So if you pay the doctor directly and then you get reimbursed, reimbursed later by your insurance company, then the doctor is free to simply do what you request and listen to you because that's his source of payment. So that is number eight. And number seven, I thought this one would be higher, but it's number, actually it's higher, it's number seven. Alkalinize or die versus acidify to live. Now there was a, <laughs> this shook up a lot of people. It turns out that your blood pH is more or less 7.4. As it goes higher and higher and higher than 7.4, you get sicker and sicker and sicker. As it goes lower and lower and lower from 7.4, you get sicker and sicker and sicker. And life happens between 7.0 and about 8.0. So if you go over 8, you die. Under 7, you die. Now, there are some rare exceptions to this. But basically, that's about the size of it. So the idea that you need to become more and more alkaline and you can't get too alkaline is absolutely false. There's another concept here, which was a shocker, is that the stomach has a pH of 1. And between a pH of 1 and 3, the stomach does a really good job of protecting you from parasites of all kinds. The kidneys, which soak up uh, toxins or in the body, they love, I mean, they love a pH of 5.5. They always, they'll take a fix, but they love a pH of 5.5. And a pH of 8 throws your kidneys into kidney failure and they need dialysis. The kidneys do not like that alkaline pH greater than 7.4. That is not what the kidneys like. And you go through your other organs and you find that your muscles, for example, they love a pH of 7.5. That's it. That's what they, that's what they work best at. That's what they contract. That's where you get your power, pH 5.5. So what happens is you take the system and pour in a bunch of water at pH 9 uh, or even pH 8. Uh, so... That's the deal, is your body, on the whole, is a bundle of acids. And there are a few places, the blood, for example, that like it a little alkaline, 7.4. The liver, by the way, likes it a little alkaline, 7.4, even likes it a little higher, 7.5. And the colon doesn't mind that, that pH uh, on the, a little bit on the alkaline side. So what is a person to do? How you get stuff into your body that keeps your stomach pH at 1 or 3, yet the blood pH at 7.4. That is the riddle. That is the riddle. And guess what? Pouring an alkaline stuff at a pH of 8, you even quibble about 7, doesn't do it, right? Doesn't do it. Because if you dump in pH 7 in your stomach, which like pH 1, what are you going to get? You're going to get a pH of probably 4 or 5. So 7 plus 3 is 10, divided by 2 is 5. So I'm going to get a pH somewhere around 5, and it may even bump up as high as 7. So pH of 7 in your stomach 
is very bad news. Why? It appears to say that 100% of all parasites are able to penetrate the stomach, and none of them die. Even at a pH of 5, some parasites get through. But guess what? All you need is sun to get through, and you've been infested. Oh, it's tough, tough, tough going. And so this story about pH was really an eye-opener for many people who have been trying to alkalinize, 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 and realize that you have specific pHs in specific parts of the body. So what's the answer to the puzzle? Of course, the answer to the puzzle was to drink acidic beverages such as distilled water and to take minerals. And your body would actually take the mineral into the body and the alkalinity would go into the body with the mineral. Other thing is that you have something called an acid pump in your stomach. And what does it do? It takes the water, which is H2O, splits it into H+, which is acid, and OH. It spits the H out into the stomach and absorbs the OH into the blood, making the blood alkaline. How about that? So when you disable this proton pump with a proton pump inhibitor, this is a known medicine, then you get serious disease spread throughout your whole body. So Dr. Yance talks about these proton pump inhibitors creating an alkaline environment in the stomach and that dumping in alkaline water is doing the same thing, creating an alkaline environment in the stomach and taking antacids taking H2 blockers, all of these things create an alkaline environment in the stomach, opening you up to parasites and total body dysfunction. And so as far as your stomach goes, you need to acidify to live. As far as your blood goes, you need to alkalinize, but only so much, only so much. 7.4 is good. That's the way you buy it. And our next our most popular, next most popular um, show is how 700,000 physicians could be wrong. How could 700,000 physicians be wrong? Well, 700,000 physicians could be wrong because half of everything they're taught in medical school is wrong. So there you go. At least 700,000 docs are wrong half the time. But wait, but wait. If half the information is wrong and the doctor gives you four or five bits of information, half of which are wrong, then that could just make the whole thing wrong, now couldn't it? And so what you have then is you have 700,000 individuals relying on totally unreliable information. And this is how 700,000 physicians could be wrong. This is how they could be the nexus of an $880,000 murdering spree, death spree. And the next most popular show is What Natural Healers Do Not Want You to Know. You know, this was a tough show for me to do because what it came down to was making the decision that my audience could handle the truth. I decided that my audience could handle the truth. And I was not completely right. I did get some complaints. (laughs) And there's Skeptics abound, and that's okay. The important thing is to get information out there. Um, So, what natural healers don't want you to know. What natural healers do not want you to know is that you really do have the power to heal yourself. 
And that the strongest medicine that you have is actually produced by your body. That's right. The strongest medicine for you is actually produced by your body. How is it produced by your body? You have your urine. And your urine is filled with antibodies that I can use to heal you. And so drinking urine is curative for many afflictions. That's one thing they natural healers don't want you to know. Because you really can't, I mean, it's tough to sell someone their own urine. That's why doctors for so long sold women the urine of horses. They sold them horse piss. Unfortunately, horse piss was not nearly as good for women as it might have been for horses. And uh, it caused women uh, a lot of misery, suffering, and pain. That would be the primary. So your own urine is actually your own perfect medicine. It's actually a manuscript with that name, uh, Your Own Perfect Medicine. So your urine can cure you. The next thing that natural healers don't want you to know is your feces can cure you. Yes, your feces can cure you. Or even more to the point, your feces can cure a friend, a relative. So your feces can cure other people, and you can be cured by other people's feces. This has become such a burgeoning field and so many lay people have found out about this and have started curing themselves with the feces of friends and relatives that the medical profession has finally said, okay, we'll use fecal medical transplant. We'll call it a fecal medical transplant. It means you take someone else's feces and put it in your body. Fecal medical transplant. We'll charge $15,000. We'll only use it very sparingly and only certain doctors will be allowed to use it. Now, this is very sad. This is a travesty. Why? Because there's an infection called C. difficile, Clostridium difficile, is caused by doctors' therapy, in other words, by antibiotics. And there's more than a 99% cure rate if you give the person the feces of another individual. And so, depending on whose numbers you believe, 15,000 to 30,000 Americans every year die from Clostridium difficile. That's more folks than die from Ebola. And doctors have the cure, which is your feces or the feces of your neighbor, and mum's the word. Mum's the word. And so 30,000 Americans every year, unnecessarily. Why? Because of things natural healers and doctors don't want them to know. Next is exposing the medical killing machine. So Dr. Daniels does, or what I did in this episode, oh boy. So in this episode, exposing the medical killing machine, uh, I talk about how one drug, in this case cholesterol drug, is the gateway drug for the next drug and the next drug, and the next drug, and finally the drug that deals with deadly blow. And so the establishing of standard of care protocols is a very important part of the medical killing machine. It just could not be that lethal without compulsory protocols. Why? The doctor would use the protocol a few times. He would see the person didn't get better. In fact, they got a lot worse. And if you died, he'd like, oh, my God. Oh my God, I'm not doing that anymore. We're going to skip that protocol. And 
you need compulsory protocols to keep doctors from exercising their better judgment. And so uh, in this episode, which you may want to go back and review at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash truth dash files, talks about the medical killing machine and how a healthy individual entering the medical matrix can be converted to a corpse. And the number two show of the whole year is Ebola and other things that go bump in the night. And that really sums that one up, which is that Ebola is just about as real as a boogeyman. And it's just like your kid crying in the middle of the night. You turn the lights on and he says, oh, the monsters are gone. And it's the same with Ebola. Shed some light on this one and boom, you're done. And so what this show covers is the medical scientific criteria for diagnosing an infection, how we know infections are caused, how we know certain things cause infection, and exposing the fact that Ebola does not fulfill any of these scientific criteria. So while people may be sick, there's absolutely no scientific evidence that their sickness is caused by Ebola. And of course, 48 million Americans every year develop fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. 48 million Americans every year develop this. And this could be from salmonella, from E. coli, from shigella, a whole list of things it could be from. But the Ebola epidemic was an attempt to relabel these 48 million people as having Ebola to construct out of thin air an epidemic and get people to surrender their property and their personal freedom without due process. And um, this is something actually that's still ongoing because doctors are receiving pretty rigorous um, updates on Ebola and how to assist in the chain of command in terms of depriving people of their property and liberty and facilitating that process. So Ebola is not dead yet, but Ebola and other things go bump in the night you need to listen to that one because that's going to show you how you can actually effectively respond to the Ebola threat and protect your health, your property, and your person. So Ebola and other things that go bump in the night. And of course, we have the number one show of all of 2014, the show, the most popular show, is a show on turpentine. (laughs) On turpentine. And the show on turpentine exposes turpentine as a universal healing agent and more than just a paint thinner. And exposes the history of turpentine as a healer over a period of hundreds of years and its effectiveness even today. And, of course, how to drink turpentine. Yes, that's an art, how to drink turpentine. And the many ways that one can use turpentine. This is really a miracle healer. And for me, when I was in medical practice, it was a big, big turning point for me when I discovered turpentine. Um, you know, I've been using diet, 
fasting, juicing, enemas, supplements, all kinds of things to help people heal. And when I rediscovered unearthed turpentine, it changed everything. It turned everything around. All of a sudden, people could make substantial, meaningful progress and leave their illnesses behind. So that was, to me, was just a huge, huge um, discovery. And it took me, really, 20 years to find a way to share this with the world. And so I'm just so happy uh, that I was able to you know, develop this report and put it out there in a form where people could actually um, understand it and apply it. As always, with all these top 10 shows, I think the big deal is it's help people overcome beliefs they had that were keeping them sick. And for most people, if they simply examine their beliefs, they can heal just by letting go of the sickness-causing beliefs. Now, we have six minutes left in the show. After mindful station identification, you are listening to Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniel. And we are ready for questions. So if you have questions, you can just kind of click one there on the telephone, and we'll check the chat room here for questions as well. All right, so let me click over here. Oh, boy. By the way, I am broadcasting from Rio de Janeiro, which means I'm using my little itty-bitty laptop. And, oh, I see. I see. And I can't see all the callers. All right, now I can see all the callers. All right, great. So if anybody has a question, they can just click on the button, and I'll see a little star, and I can take questions. Meanwhile, I have questions in the chat room. Okay, if I refuse all antibiotics, will that protect me from ever getting C. difficile? Answer is possibly, but probably not. Why? Because food is laced with antibiotics. And because the food is laced with antibiotics, and because the public water supply is laced with antibiotics, uh, it's not possible to um, avoid these antibiotic-resistant infections just by not taking antibiotics. However, there are things you can do to minimize it. Taking, not refusing antibiotics, numero uno. That's number one. Number two is refuse needles. Why do you refuse needles? Because if you have ingested meat that contains antibiotic-resistant organisms, those antibiotic-resistant organisms are sitting on your skin where they cannot harm you. That's what your immune system does to take care of them. And when you are pierced with a needle, those resistant bacteria are introduced into your uh, connective tissue, your lymph, your blood, whatever, and they can harm you tremendously. So just refusing antibiotics is a good start, but it's not enough. Not enough. Okay. Okay. Is the media simply an important part of a bone pointing campaign creating disease out of belief? 
Absolutely. Right now, the American uh, citizen is filled, their mind is filled with imaginary diseases. So what's an imaginary disease? An imaginary disease is a disease whose causality is simply not accurate. For example, if you have uh, cervical cancer, then of course you have cervical cancer. Got that. But does cervical cancer, is cervical cancer caused by human papilloma ward virus? No evidence, none whatever. Why? Because more people without cervical cancer have the human ward virus than people with cervical cancer. So in other words, using a scientific basis for determining if something is infectious, the cervical cancer human papilloma wart virus link fails. So then, cervical cancer amenable to pap smear and preventable by apprehending the human papilloma wart virus, this is an imaginary link, it's an imaginary disease. AIDS, another imaginary disease. Another imaginary disease. So with all these imaginary diseases that people are totally preoccupied by, are people sick? Of course. Are these organisms causing these sicknesses? No evidence to that effect. And so, yes, the media is a very important link in this information that is creating in people's minds these imaginary diseases and it actually keeps people from putting their efforts in areas that might be productive. At the end of our show, and this is, we have one more show, one more show in 2014, it looks like. Yes, on December 30th, we'll have one more show. So, awesome. We will see you next week. And until then, think happens. Absolutely does.